If you or someone you care about is struggling with thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. Hi, welcome to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Sarah. This is Chris. This is Deacon Basil. And today we are going to be talking about the wonderfully super happy, joyful topic of depression. So you, you were being sarcastic there, I noticed. Yes. Picked up on that. That's the years of <laughs> clinical training. Good job. Best coping mechanism. Sarcasm, Sarcasm. is a great coping mechanism. Yeah, humor. Yeah. Humor really is. Laughter is the best medicine. I mean, medicine's also, like, pretty good. <laughs> medicine, but... <laughs> Actual <laughs> medicine is good, too. Yeah. Laughter's not bad. Yeah, yeah. depression is the topic du jour. What do you think? Yeah, about one it? of the things that we were, we were kind of talking about before before we uh, started recording here was how you know that there is still a stigma around depression, around depressive thoughts, around you know the struggles with depression, those who who struggle with depression, and you know I don't think it's nearly as bad as it was maybe a few decades ago, but you know mm. I still think that does remain, and you know I, I'm curious, you know Chris, have you seen that? you know, with people who are hesitant to talk about depression because of the stigma around, around it. Yeah. Particularly, you know, I think every, every demographic group has this stigma to one degree or another, but it's interesting, particularly in Christian circles, sometimes there's this expectation that, you know, um, once you're saved, once you, uh, you know, from a Protestant perspective, or once you enter into the church and participate in the church's sacramental life from a Catholic perspective or Orthodox perspective, once those things happen, um, you really should just be peppy all day, every day. Because Jesus loves me and everything's going to be great now and oh. life is perfect, right? Like, totally life is right. just perfect and, and, after that, right? And then, it, and then no. it's not. Yeah. No, <laughs> right, it's and not. then it's not, sure. And like, you know, there, first of all... D- Depression can can manifest in anyone for any number of reasons. It, you know, it, I I would guess it's very likely that if you if you have major depressive disorder before your conversion experience, you might still have major depressive disorder after your conversion experience. Um, that isn't to say that Christianity doesn't provide you with the ultimate path to salvation, to happiness, to meaning, but it does. Um, what it does say is that you you still need to get help, right? And maybe mm-hmm. to make this theological, that's actually God's way of showing us like, Hey, get with the program. Like, you know, don't be, um, I don't know, like, don't be Gnostic, right? Like a Gnostic perspective would, would maybe say like, okay, once I have like the secret wisdom and the secret knowledge, then boom, like my problems go away. But from a Christian perspective, you still need community. You know, the, the ailments of the body still require biological or pharmacological treatment and you still need to get professional help. What do you think right. about that? No, I think, I think that's absolutely the case. I think, you know, sometimes um, you know, my wife is on Facebook, and so, which is, by the way, <laughs> which, is it's cor- weird, which is actually actually correlated with depression, um, but that's besides the yeah, point. Anxiety um, too, yeah. But, um, but, you know, she'll talk about, you know, these, these people who seem to think that, that 
you know, if you, the depression is a result of not being able to pray enough or, or you can pray things away. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why um, depression might come about. And, and it's really, really naive um, to think that you can just simply pray it away or that it's a, a mark of someone not being holy having enough. this, yeah, having the spirit or yeah. not being holy enough or anything like that. Um, you know, you don't think that someone has lupus and is morally deficient. No. Um, yeah, exactly. and, and, you know, you don't. You, you know it, you don't get it, have cancer because you're a sinner right you although although I mean, well some might say that but you know we as Catholics don't don't view it that way um, smoking is not a sin as unhealthy as it is uh, well okay there's an argument there, <laughs> there is um, one, but so actually on that topic though there was just um, there was just some publicity about some study or some meta-analysis on like prayer religion and health outcomes and it does seem that having faith and having a consistent and deep prayer life is protective against some mental illness or can mitigate the effects of some mental illness. So certainly even from like the most secular perspective, we would say prayer is healthy and religion is healthy. But what Deacon Basil said, it's not always enough. And certainly it's not a substitute for therapy if mm -hmm. you have depression. Absolutely. That actually reminded me of Viktor Frankl's book, um, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. And how his whole system of logotherapy is built around having a sense of meaning in your life to give you purpose, to give you a drive oh, yeah. for something. And religion provides that for people. Totally, yeah. Me like, meaninglessness is definitely, I think, part of, the, part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. I think there's a lot of kind of strange... Uh, mysticism around what depression actually is you know i mean it, you know who, who really knows what it is well it's you know is it feeling sad is it not feeling at all and you know when we as psychotherapists turn to a specific psychological uh condition we always turn back to uh, it, it's it's my favorite book title to say out loud the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorder five um, it's really long. It's and very long. Very yeah. pretentious sounding. I noticed yours is much longer. Like it's much bigger than mine. I don't know what that says. Really? Are these the same? They are the same, but look look at the well, difference in size. What? Which it? Uh, fifth edition. Fifth edition. Yeah. Is yours taller? I don't know. It so doesn't really matter. He ripped bigger. out all the diagnoses he didn't I, like. I don't like. Yeah, <laughs> or all the ones that apply to me. And then rather, what Sarah did instead was she inserted a bunch of pages from like medieval manuals of demonology. So and witchcraft. Just has don't more, witchcraft. Just more content. Yeah. <laughs> but if we turn to um, you know kind of the classic disorder, the the classic depressive disorder, which is just major depressive disorder. There are a number of other disorders that might manifest as depression, um, but if we turn to major depressive disorder, the way in which we would diagnose things would be um, looking at um, these different criteria. Now, I want to be very, very clear because my lawyer will be very angry if I don't say this. This <laughs> is not intended to be a diagnostic process for you. If you're listening to this and going, well, boy, I'm going to be able to t um, diagnose myself with depression. No, no, you can't. You have to go to many, many years of, of grad school in order to be able to do that. Well, so, yeah, and even then you can't diagnose yourself. Right. You can't diagnose yourself. Please don't try to diagnose yourself for anything. Ever. Right. I mean... Yeah, but what this kind of is, is the things that we look for might manifest, you know, in different ways in different people. And that's why you really need all of that education to be able to differentiate that. So the first one is, you know, you need five or more of these symptoms for two weeks, uh, for a two-week period 
um, and that at least one of them must be a depressed mood or a loss of interest. So, what does that mean? Well, this does uh, this means that it needs to be uh, a two-week period. This isn't just an afternoon um, of difficulty. This isn't just a post. Um, getting yelled at by your boss and you're a little depressed. This is a, a two-week period at least. So the, the first one would be a depressed mood um, for most of the day, nearly every day. Um, and so it could be stuff like hopelessness, you know, kind of describing hopelessness or, or, or sadness, um, feelings of emptiness, and how that kind of can manifest. I mean, how does that kind of see in your work? I was going to ask you first um, if you could maybe comment on that term depressed mood. Mm. Um, you said something interesting off mic about the difference between depressed mood and sadness. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the difference is that sadness is kind of an active feel feeling, you know, where I am feeling sad about something. Mm -hmm. A depressive mood is no feeling. Right. Okay. Like a restricted, restricted, a restricted range yeah, of emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That, okay. that, that, that they're different. So that, you know, I can be really sad one time and then be, you know, happy the next morning. Yeah, or sure. Or it's not uncommon to meet people who are depressed to the point where they can't, they can't um, gather the strength to even express that sadness. Yeah. You know, they, they lack that expressivity. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And speaking of uh, the ways in which depression is expressed, uh, a quick note. In children, this can look a little bit differently. In particular, with young children, oftentimes you'll see the irritable mood in place of the depressed mood or alongside the depressed mood uh, or alongside the sadness. The reason for that is um, children are still learning how to develop and express their emotions. And irritability, you think about you know infants and neonates, is really one of the first prime innate emotions you're born with and it just seems like a, a easier manifestation for children so even though you know on some deep level they might be experiencing sadness the way that might look externally is irritability right right and, th and that can be very kind of challenging to differentiate and that yeah. just because your child is irritable you know for no. a period of time doesn't mean they're depressed I want well to we've only just gotten that, the first criteria yeah, right so wow, this is okay, a, no, well, i'm irritable and i'm sad sometimes i must have mdd no no right, no, no, right. no. Okay, number two. Number two would be, you know, a loss of, of uh, interest or pleasure in activities. And so, you know... Most that, of the day. Most of the day, yeah, most of the day. Nearly um, every day. So, what that might look like is, you know, I was really, really interested in, in football. Um, those who know me know how ridiculous that statement <laughs> is for me. But, um, you know, I was really, really interested in football. And then the season started, and, and I just I just don't. And have now I, all I want to do is watch World Cup, and World, I'm just World like, Cup. Foot, American football um, does nothing for me anymore. Right, that would right. be an example. That would be no. <laughs> no, that would mean sanity. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, that 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 you've really transitioned away from this what used to be pleasurable, um, and, and you know would give you um, enjoyment. Fancy word for that is anhedonia. Yeah, that is the fancy word for that. Um, and so that would be you know. I was going along with this thing that used to be really enjoyable and all of a sudden or over a short period of time, it's lost that interest. I don't really care about it that much. And this isn't just suddenly becoming bored with something that's ADD. Um, like, let's say you have this long-term project that you've been going on with for, like, most of the year and then all of a sudden it's just, you've hit a wall and you just can't work on the project. Like, if you're an artist and you just can't work on this painting anymore, if you're a writer and you just can't work on a story anymore, mm -hmm. um, or you like knitting and you just can't finish the blanket. I like that you used um, writer and artist because you often hear about, like, the 
like there's a it's like we have this modern mythos that creative types are like more prone to depression i have no idea if that's true or not but right. it's just an interesting like artifact of our culture is that and, and in the news right so many of the big stories you read the tragic stories about like you know household names who um have lost their lives to suicide they're always like artists writers musicians mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and who knows? The, the, the next two actually go hand in hand. Not that they go hand in hand, but they, they, they point to the same phenomena. Significant weight loss or significant weight, excuse me, significant weight gain. And then the, uh, the next one is insomnia or hypersomnia. So, you know, you might lose a lot of weight. And this is significant. This isn't, you know, 10 pounds. This, you know, it, it depends on the person, but... Uh, <laughs> Me losing 10 pounds versus Deacon Basil losing 10 pounds. Deacon Basil could lose 10 pounds and, and it would be a very good thing. And not attributable to a to diet or yeah. even a medical condition. Exactly, exactly. But it could also be weight gain, you yeah. know, on, on the other side. So um, it's really a change in the norm mm -hmm. when it comes to weight. And also, in addition to that, insomnia, which means uh, not able to sleep, or hypersomnia, meaning sleeping too, too much... Mm -hmm. A change in the in the sleep pattern is there as well. So very often, what we're looking for in, in sort of a clinical diagnostic session is those kinds of changes. Quiz, pop quiz for both of you. This uh -oh. was Grace and I looked at this a while ago. Um, which is more common statistically um, among people who have depression, insomnia or hypersomnia? We told you not to do things to embarrass us on on Mike, Chris. No, I would say actually um, insomnia, less sleep. Yeah. I would go with insomnia too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. You're Which right. is really funny because that's that's not what you would normally hear out in the sort of typical uh, No, like culture. the typical, yeah, caricature, you know, pop description of depression is like oh, you guy sleep who sleeps all, all the day. Time. Yeah. Yeah, four, yeah, 14 to 20% of persons um, with complaints of insomnia and approximately 10% with hypersomnia. So go figure. Right. That actually makes sense to me. Like you might not be sleeping all the time, but you might just be laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, thinking the same thoughts in just a spiral motion, and oh, not yeah, able to fall asleep. Sure, yeah. Rumination yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you guys are going to laugh when I say this, but Evagrius talked about that very phenomena. <laughs> what um, he did? Seven hundred years ago. You know that that it's that three a.m. I can't sleep. I've got this constant sort of thoughts of. I just want to um, go to sleep. I, I still have to do that thing. I need to go to sleep so I have energy tomorrow. Right. What and, if I just blah, 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 and, and da, 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 And, and every yeah. hour that ticks by, it gets worse, mm -hmm. right? You know, you're like, oh, tomorrow's going to be worse. And that gives you anxiety, which then keeps you up. And then, you know, it's, yeah. No, absolutely. So number five would be psychomotor agitation or retardation. And that's those are clinical terms. What that means is that you are either really kind of, Agity, twitchy, yeah. twitchy would be kind of, out, a, a yeah. way of putting it. Yeah, tweaked out, uh, or or very slow in the way in which you respond to things physically. Sluggish, sluggish yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a great weight placed on you. Yeah, and so you know, five would be a fatigue or loss of energy um, nearly every day. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, and then feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. Now that. You know, we as Catholics, psychiatrists oh, in yeah. France used to call it the melody catholique, um, which is the Catholic melody, um, you know, the Catholic diagnostic issue, um, you know, but it's more than just simply that. Melody or melancholy? Malady. 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 Oh. Do I need to bring Pauline in? 
Yeah, no, you just need to enunciate. Enunciate, okay, fair enough. But malady Catholic, um, the the malady of Catholic, of the Catholics, you know, and and that there's this sort of way in which it's a recognition of my sinfulness and the guilt that I have, a sort of appropriate guilt, but this is excessive, you know, and this is this is um, sort of that rumination and fixation on that that is not mm-hmm. realistic to what has happened. Mm-hmm. So it's not just I'm a sinful person, it's I'm responsible for all the sin and the entire world for all of time and it's just awful and everything's on my shoulders and I just if I was just a better person then the world would be better I can't do anything right yeah yeah, yeah all examples of it um, a diminished ability to, uh, to think or concentrate um, or their indecisiveness there's indecisiveness like a fog in the brain like a fog in the brain yep actually that's exactly how you know it has been described in uh, France it was called le fog du, du brain <laughs> It was not uh, like that. <laughs> I'm going to tell Pauline on you. We have a um, French friend who's um, who's waiting to do a, another episode. She, <laughs> I'm, I really hope she's not hearing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's this this inability to concentrate, um, and sometimes you know, depression might come out in in difficulty being able to complete tasks at work, or it might come out in a um, inability to to uh, finish your homework and homework and, and yeah absolutely pay attention in class stay awake in class right um recurring thoughts of death um or recurrent suicidal ideation um and so it's sort of a, a morose um, um fixation um and i think that this is this is typical um this is not just simply what the saints would do where they'd say remember your death this is memento mori i i can't focus in on anything else except death okay. now of those nine, there's also the next criteria, which applies to all of them, which means they must be um, they must cause clinically significant distress or impairment. So this means that, like, in order to be diagnosed with this, it actually needs to affect you long enough and and badly enough to uh, yeah get in the way of your typical functioning. Yep. Yeah, which you know, like in our first episode, get, brings us back to Leon Cass's definition of health. If health is the well-working of an organism as a whole, then, you know, d- depression is an, is an illness when and if it impairs that well-working, right, significantly. Awesome. Um, once again, it, you know, there's a thing called first-year medical student syndrome where you read about a bunch of diagnoses and you think you have them all. But uh, so, so, too, with podcast listeners who like mental health podcasts, you... Uh, would definitely want to consult with a professional before jumping to conclusions about your diagnoses. Yeah. And and it's important because the next one is it's not attributed to any other physiological or psychological symptom or condition. Yeah. And, you know, that that's really important because most of most people don't have the sort of ability to differentiate those slight variations what will really change right and, and, and so actually some of this differential diagnosis would be done with a with a, a primary care physician too potentially um, I was you know listening to a great lecture on depression from more of a biological perspective and you know this lecturer Robert Sapolsky he's at Stanford he's like a neuroscience guy he was talking about how like 20 percent of de- depression is uh, undiagnosed you know hypothyroidism so you know yeah hormonal stuff there's so many Mm-hmm. explanations and even even the causes of depression i mean it, it would be it would be laborious to go through them all but suffice it to say that um, the jury's still out and what brain chemical exactly contributes to depression we don't know if it's 
All of them and none of them. All of them and none of them. Or in different people, different ones. Norepinephrine, serotonin. Yeah, it's not. Glutamate, dopamine. It's not as clear as perhaps those commercials um, Mm. kind of indicated. Oh, exactly. I think we've uh, moved past that. Naivety, like. Yeah, absolutely. So if we looked at that, what are, I mean, maybe a handful of those possible causes. You know, for me, the one thing that that comes up from a cognitive perspective, Mm. you know, as as a cognitive um, therapist, is what we would call maladaptive thinking. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about this before, but but basically, those thought patterns that come from those core beliefs, uh, perhaps it's a core belief of, I'm worthless, or I, you know, I am, I am trash, I am, you know, whatever, and that those that core belief will then lead to automatic thoughts that lead to these kind of depressive symptoms. That could be one possibility, and and, and certainly the one that I, in clinical practice, work with the most. Mm -hmm. But um, Yeah, another one that comes to mind is something called learned helplessness. Um, A psychologist named Seligman did a lot of work on this. You know, when, um, for instance, in animal models, when animals are exposed to stressful situations they can control, they typically make out okay. When animals are subjected to stressful situations that they have no control over, even if, like, um, it's less adverse, then they react much worse and develop a condition where they essentially give up. Right. And so perhaps a core belief that like, I have no control over my life or my situation could be a contributing factor. And then it leads to a sort of human version of this animal learned helplessness. Yeah. And, and you were saying before that there is also, you know, some, some biological or neurochemical, um, evidence for that. Yeah. So, I mean, we, uh, psychiatrists treat depression with antidepressants. That's Shocker. some sort of, that sounds like a tautology. Right. Um, and antidepressants come in different, they come in different flavors like cherry, raspberry. Really? Grape? No, they come in different varieties <laughs> like SSRIs, MAOI inhibitors, um, tricyclics, and Do you want to define those or no? No, no. I just want to give the audience some idea that there are many different options out there and that they do target different brain chemicals, but different things do work for different people and there's no universal answer for here's what causes depression. No silver bullet? There's no silver bullet. Great. So it's not like other kind of medical conditions where it's like, you know, in order to... Um, fix this or cure this, you just take this one pill, which is, you know, the, you know, the I, typical thing. Right. Well, and, and even in other, you know, medical conditions that are that are more strictly biological, it doesn't work that way. You know, like right. uh, cancer, different cancer patients respond to different treatments. And so it almost makes me wonder if depression is more like cancer and that it's a family of disorders. You know, think about the number of different situations in life that can cause depression. Um, There's some interesting studies on, like, whether or not depression correlates with any particular genes. And certainly it does tend to run in families. But some of the research in epigenetics shows that it's not like, oh, you're born with a depression gene. Boom. Like, you are preordained by God to have depression. Rather, the research shows that you could be born with this predisposition, which is then activated by stressful events in your life. So, which is super fascinating. Fascinating so stuff. Cool. Yeah. The no, science of epigenetics. That, Sarah that, loves that it. nature is the genes. Well, nature and nurture. But nurture activates them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Science. So, Sarah, cool. tell us a little bit. Maybe like, I feel like you can get super poetic and like wax <laughs> eloquently. Of, wax eloquently <laughs> about like what what are what can depression feel like, and why can't you just pray it away? You cannot just pray away depression. You Sometimes you can't offer it up. 
Um, oh, I think it's mentioned. Off right up? Like, what is that? Yeah, I'm gonna rant about this for a second. So, hold on to your hats, kids. <laughs> I hate the phrase "offer it up" so much. I like it. Better. Chris is a fan. Um, because especially with depression, depression will physically feel like a weighted suit on your body. It is difficult to move. It is difficult to think. It is difficult to breathe, let alone cognitively, actively lift up your spirit in prayer to offer up your suffering. Sometimes you can't offer it up on your own behalf. The phrase pray for me is much more suitable mm. when you need prayers, but oh, you are let in me pray for you. It's yeah. Like offered up. yeah. It's like, not just, oh, I'll pray for you. It's like, no, 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 I will pray for you in your place. Because there are moments when you can't pray for yourself, when you are nearly incapable of prayer, and the only thing that you can do is groan or cry out, like Job or the Psalms um, or the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to know what depression or hopelessness looks like, that's a great example. Yeah, um, do you do you have any of those offhand? Those scriptures? Do we have a Bible in this room? Do we supposed to mean? Do, do we have a Bible? <laughs> you know exactly what I mean, kids. <laughs> I really don't. Know. <laughs> How about this? While you're Deacon, do you have any like scriptures that you like on depression? Um, you know, one of my favorites is is just the beginning of Ecclesiastes. You know, it's um. A vanity of vanities, all the world is vanity. Um, and I think, you know, I don't think that's depression. I think that's actually true. But yeah. I think what it's really getting to... Joy. What, right? Isn't it? <laughs> but, I mean, it's getting to that kind of question behind some of the, the sort of ruminations that happen during depression, which is, what is the meaning and the purpose of all of this? And yeah. I think, you know, that that it's true that most of the stuff that we are so worried about and so fixated on and so, con, you know, focused in on for most of our lives is really vanity and not that important in the grand scheme of things, particularly when one considers the glory of God. That's so interesting. That's almost like the anti-depressive verse when you think about it like that. Right, yeah. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it's really good. I like it. I'm a fan. It's one of my favorites, which sounds really weird when I say it out loud to people who don't understand it. Do you have um? Do you have a verse? No. Okay. I okay. thought it was before twenty one. That's all right. I have a I have a depression verse. So there are a lot of psalms that are laments, and a lot of psalms really um, evoke a strong sense of hopelessness, which is ironic given that the scriptures are the most hopeful collection of books you can find. But Psalm ninety, starting from Verse 9. Listen to this. This is the Revised Standard Version. For all our days pass away under thy wrath. Our years come to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are threescore and ten, or, by reason of strength, fourscore. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So again, it's both. Yeah. It's both hopeful and it's both an expression of meaninglessness and like 
exasperation almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about reading through the Psalms is realizing I will never be as dramatic as David. No. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> Drama queen. Totally. Um, but that also is such a great comfort because his laments, his drama, his um, whining is part of sacred scripture. Um, so it, it almost gives us permission to have these feelings and to make these complaints and to yell at God. Yeah. Um, no, you will not get struck down by lightning if you're angry at God. David did it plenty of times. And he was still yeah. around for he, quite a while. He set a good precedent. Jacob wrestled with God and ended up getting a new name of Isaiah, uh, Israel, of Israel, meaning the blessed one, the one who was blessed. His name was literally changed to being blessed because Which he wrestled with God. I really love because yeah. he was so, it's like, you have to be in really close contact to wrestle with someone. Yeah, for anyone a long with time. siblings, anyone with siblings knows this. You can't wrestle over FaceTime. It's true. Right. Well, yeah. And I mean, yeah. to be blessed is to be close with God in any way, shape, or form. Like mm -hmm. you can be wrestling with Him. You can be giving Jesus a hug. Doesn't matter. Be close. Well, so this this is related to our initial conversation about stigma. I wonder if another another thing that. Christians can feel stigmatized about is having doubts about the faith, um, feeling angry towards God after having suffered greatly, you know, having some sort of resentment for the church. And those are experiences that all the the great prophets and biblical figures had mm. themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I just came across Psalm 68, um, which literally yeah. just brings it up right there, right there at the beginning. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying, my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. This guy's in trouble. Like, yeah. he is drowning. And God's not there yet, and he's still waiting. And sometimes we're in that place for a lot longer than we want to be which is, you know, two seconds, and we're done with it. Yeah. So. So when we kind of look at these, these concepts within scriptures, these kind of, this ability to, to both uh, be present with the Lord and also wrestle with the Lord, but, but, you know, I think it really ties us back to that one particularly painful aspect of depression, which is um, the last criteria, but it's, it's really that, that sort of, struggle with with suicidal ideation mm -hmm. and not that not that those who struggle with um things are thinking about suicide but i think it can get to that it point. can get to that point i i did bring an article though i wanted to issue yet another caveat um i just feel like we can't do this enough this is one of those topics where if you're not careful it, people can get really worried um not not everyone with depression considers suicide and actually relatively few with depression commit suicide. So while it's true that about 50% of people in the United States who do commit suicide had symptoms of depression or major depressive disorder, only between 
two and nine percent of those who have depression commit suicide, which is still alarmingly high, but a lot lower not, than I thought. Not a death sentence, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's not insignificant given that. I mean, you've said this before, Deacon. Depression is like the common cold of psychiatry. Mm. Probably the most diagnosed, maybe. I don't know. Uh, by far. Now that we don't have, like, not otherwise specified stuff in, <laughs> in the fifth edition of DSM. It's, yeah, so um, it's true that, you know, suicide is um, something to look out for. But, uh, you know, um, for those who have loved ones suffering from depression, um, it doesn't automatically mean that you have to um, worry for their, for their lives at all times. Suicide. How does one handle suicide besides um, getting help, calling a hotline, what are some more existential ways to think about suicide? I think in order to combat suicide, you have to have something to hold on to. You have to have an anchor. Um, and I love the historical image of the anchor as hope. Um, hope has always been personified as an anchor. And I think that it can be as simple or as deep as you need it to be. It's no one else is around this weekend to feed the cat, so I have to stick around to take care of the cat. It can be, I really want to find out what happens next season on my favorite TV show. It can be, my grandma would be so sad if I killed myself. Um, or, this would destroy my little brother and I can't do that. As much pain as I'm in, I can't do that to someone else. It can be, the church teaches that suicide is wrong and that it's damaging to the human person and that I I just don't want to do that and I don't want to face God with that. It That's can really be... Good. I really like that yeah, anchor thing. That you, if you have something, if you just have a something, that can help and keep you together so much, like more than people realize. There, there's this TV show that I've been watching since 2005. I'm not going to say the name because it's terrible. I probably shouldn't watch it. But it's really delightful. And one of the main actors has struggled with... Okay, fine. It's supernatural. Don't give me that look. I, I was expecting um, that 13 Reasons or whatever that... Oh, no. That's a terrible... Because that's, that's also a Netflix show. That yeah. It's supernatural. It's... Okay. So imagine two brothers, this really awesome car... Supernatural and, is like a divine act that's not through an instrumental cause. So like it would be like a direct intervention. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so what's this Supernatural? Okay, so it's a TV show. It's been on since 2005. And episode one, I knew this would be my show. Like some people, that's how they feel about Star Trek. Why are you looking at me when you say that? I don't know. <laughs> Do you like Star Trek? I mean, I, I, I have in the past, but... <laughs> but you're a deacon now. I'm a deacon now, yes. Okay. I put aside earthly cares. Right. Um, so it's about characters. two brothers who hunt monsters, basically. Adventures and shenanigans ensue. Sounds super relevant to this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they have... The fan culture has this amazing uh, movement um, encouraging mental health because one of the main actors um, was struggling with suicidal ideation and depression for a really long time mm -hmm. until um, he finally got help. Like, he was this, you know, young man, like, in his early 20s, had this successful show going on, had a lot of things going for him, and he just hated life. Mm -hmm. um, so they have a lot of really beautiful, really uplifting um, interactions with their fans. 
And it can be as simple as that. It's like, you know, this person struggled with the same thing that I'm dealing with, and they made it through. And if they can find something to hope for and something to give them hope, uh, maybe I can use that hope too. Installation of hope, one of Yalom's therapeutic factors. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what are some more sort of existential ways of perhaps looking at things that might be beneficial? You should read us that quote you have from that really great 20th century Catholic writer that we've been waiting to get to all episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was not subtle at all. <gasps> okay, so what they are talking about is um, Walker Percy. This is taken from his essay on the depressed self in his book, Lost in the Cosmos. The only cure for depression is suicide. This is not meant as a bad joke, but as the serious proposal of suicide as a valid option. Unless the option is entertained seriously, its therapeutic value is lost. No threat is credible unless the threatener means it. This treatment of depression requires a reversal of the usual therapeutic rationale. The therapeutic rationale, which has never been questioned, is that depression is a symptom. A symptom implies an illness. There is something wrong with you. An illness should be treated. Suppose you are depressed. You may be mildly or seriously depressed, clinically depressed, or suicidal. What do you usually do? Or what does one do to with you? Do nothing or something? If something, what is done is always based on the premises that something is wrong with you and therefore it should be remedied. You are treated. You apply to friend, counselor, physician, minister, group. You take a trip, take antidepressant drugs, change jobs, change wife or husband or sexual partner. Now call into question the unspoken assumption. Something is wrong with you. Like Copernicus and Einstein, turn the universe upside down and begin with a new assumption. Assume that you are right. You are depressed because you have every reason to be depressed. No member of the other two million species which inhabit the earth, and who are lucky, luckily <laughs> exempt from depression, would fail to be depressed if it lived the life you lead. Mm. You live in a deranged age. More deranged than usual. <laughs> because despite great scientific and technological advances, Man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he is doing. Begin with the reverse hypothesis, like Copernicus and Einstein. You are depressed because you should be. You are entitled to your depression. In fact, you'd be deranged if you were not depressed. Consider the only adults who are never depressed. Chuckleheads, California circles, and fundamentalist Christians who believe they have had a personal encounter with Jesus and are saved once for all. Would you trade your depression to become any of these? Now notice that as soon as suicide is taken as a serious alternative, a curious thing happens. To be or not to be becomes a true choice, where before you were stuck with to be. You can elect suicide, but you decide not to. What happens? All at once, you are dispensed. Why not live instead of dying? You are free to do so. You are like a prisoner released from the cell of his life. You notice that the door to the cell is ajar, and that the sun is shining outside. Why not take a walk down the street? Where you might be dead, you are alive. The sun is shining. 
Suddenly you feel like a castaway on an island. You can't believe your good fortune. And you, an ex-suicide, lying on the beach? In what way have you been freed by the serious entertainment of your hypothetical suicide? Are you not free for the first time in your life to consider the folly of man, the most absurd of all the species, and to contemplate the cosmic mystery of your own existence? And even to consider which is the more absurd state of affairs, the manifest absurdity of your predicament, lost in the cosmos, and no news of how you got into such a fix or how to get out, or the even more preposterous eventuality that news did come from the god of the cosmos, who took pity on your ridiculous plight and entered the space and time of your insignificant planet to tell you something. The difference between a non-suicide and an ex-suicide is leaving the house for work at 8 o'clock on an ordinary morning. The non-suicide is a little traveling suck of care, sucking care with him from the past and being sucked toward care in the future. His breath is high in his chest. The ex-suicide opens his front door, sits down on the steps, and laughs. Since he has the option of being dead, he has nothing to lose by being alive. It is good to be alive. He goes to work because he doesn't have to. Well, a hopeful note, I think, to end on is just uh, reaffirming that depression is a way of being in a crazy, scary world, and there are things you can do about it. Any and to seek thoughts? help if it is something that's going on. I highly recommend Deacon Basil. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing more. <laughs> I think we rendered him speechless. I think you have. All right. That's marvelous. Adios.